on the first Empire podcast of 2015, we welcome not one, but two possible best actor Oscar contenders in the guise of Birdman's Michael Keaton and a theory of everything's Eddie Redmayne, while his co-star Felicity Jones, herself an awards contender, also pops in. All that to come, plus the usual movie news and nonsense on the podcast. I saw Cats the other night, and you know what? I don't think I'm reticle for this jellicle. Hello, Pod. I'm Chris Hewitt. Didn't understand a word of that. Yeah, stop trying it, to make Jellicle happen, it, cats. Yeah, Come it's, on. I didn't, it, baffling, utterly baffling. Anyway, hello, Pod. I'm Chris Hewitt, and welcome to the Empire Podcast in association with Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create a professional website, blog, portfolio, or online store for a free trial and 10% off your first purchase on new accounts. Go to squarespace.com and use the offer code EMPIRE. Took us ages to come up with that offer code, but there you go. Empire is the offer code. Uh, joining me after our extended Christmas break, almost three weeks away, unbelievable, our three colleagues of such lethal cunning. First up is our geek queen, a lady whose New Year resolution is to spend less time with Jensen Ackles and Jared Padalecki. Well, I say resolution, it's more of a court order. Hello, Helen O'Hara, how are you? Uh, I'm very well, Chris. As you know, that's that's a complete fiction. I've never heard of these Ackles people that you speak of. Next up is our film fact fiend, a man whose New Year resolution is to find the one unanswerable movie trivia question. For example, what happened to David Spade's career? Not a question. He's very successful, very, very happy. He's on TV. He's all good. He was in Grown Ups too. I guess has a movie career. It's Ali Plum. Hello. Hello. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Excellent. How was your Christmas? Good, thanks. Great. And then, last but not least, well, my New Year's resolution was to spend more time with my good friend and former neighbour, James White, a.k.a. Jaime Blanco, uh, Empire's West Coast editor. But because I can't be arsed going to L.A., we brought him here. James White, hello, how are you? Bonjour. Wait, wait, no, that's not Spanish. Jaime Blanco. (laughs) Uh, I'm glad to be here. Thank you very much for having me. Let's start with some questions. First questions of 2015. This is from podcast regular NC Low at NC Low on Twitter, uh, who says, "Easy one to start the year. What geeky goodies did you get for Christmas? I got a Marvel coloring book." Smiley face. So there you go. I'd love a Marvel coloring book. That'd be amazing, <laughs> Helen. My family have bought me a Wonder Woman running outfit. It's made of proper like wicking running fabric, apparently. Steady, gents. And is you know. Good for running in, but is also Wonder Woman, so I'm very excited. Does um, it come with? Does it come with the? Uh, the comes with and, the wristbands. The yeah, the wristbands, and, and, and it has a little. It has a little cape hanging off the vest top at the back. Nice. Yeah. Wow, that's that's cool. Will you be doing the spinning thing? I will be going, Wonder Woman <laughs> for twenty six. For twenty six point two miles. Yes, I will just. No, one thirty tooth. I think you're fine. <laughs> That would actually be a hilarious way to do a marathon, just dance around it going, Wonder Woman! <laughs> At what no. point do you think you would die? Uh, 1.32. <laughs> uh, Ali, any... I got a copy of The Room on DVD with a threat on it. And another one, uh, I also got a David Shrigley book. Uh, pretty big, he's got a really big new coffee book, which I guess is nerdy if you're into that sort of thing. Who's David Shrigley? David Shrigley is one of those comic artists or cartoonists. I don't think you want to be called a cartoonist, but I think he's, a, he's an artist which could be conceived as being comic, who writes, uh, who draws drawings that are essentially a man staring into an empty morass, and then he, uh, it's just a little stick figure, and then it just says crap above it. It's that level of kind of oh, okay. despairing bleak humour. So yeah, David Shrigley, if you know him, you'll love him, and if you don't know him, well, then go find out about him, because he's great. Interesting. Very interesting. Blanco. I got a couple of things. Uh, a couple of friends bought me a Star Wars 
uh, Christmas T-shirt, which is uh, a couple of at-ats made up to look like reindeer, and the one at the front has a Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer nose. Uh, most of my family, extended family, a little bit older, didn't really get it. They're sort of, is, isn't that just a laser gun at the front? He's like, no, it's Rudolph's nose. He's wearing antlers. Do you, do you not get <laughs> that this is essentially Santa's team, but at-ats? It's fantastic. It's star- it says Star Wars on it. Anyway. Uh, the other thing I got, not quite a Christmas gift, just a gift I got from someone who is awesome, and that was a massive Marvel encyclopedia of all the characters uh-huh. for when I'm writing new stories and my uh, Marvel comic knowledge doesn't extend quite as far as Chris's. It's, it's growing very quickly, but when I need to refer to some sort of little part of the lore of the Marvel comics, I can just look back and go, oh, this, such and such did this. Or Peter was Parker is Spider-Man. What? What? Sorry. I haven't got to pee. Spoiler. <laughs> I'm only on C. Uh, that's great. That's a great gift. How up to date is it? Is it one? This is like 1970s edition. <laughs> it's just. It's it's pretty good to be honest. I think it was actually updated last year, year before. Oh. So it's it's not bad. It it does make some references to the movies and things like that. So it's it's great. That's we'll good. Tie it in. I was watching Toy Story three over Christmas, and um, at one point, one of the cars uh, that I think Bonnie's mum drives in the film, uh, the number plate is MCU. So I say we start a rumour that Toy Story takes place in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I Why not? Let's yeah. do it. It's all Why Disney. phone by Disney. Yeah. yeah. It, could, it could happen. Yeah. It probably it's, won't. It's not as batshit insane, frankly, as that all the Pixar movies are in, taking place in one universe exactly. theory as well. So yeah, I think so. What if Galactus arrived and tried to eat a pizza planet? I think Buzz Lightyear would save us. Mm, I think he'd lose that fight, to be honest. I think. <laughs> I think but Pizza pretty... Planet does sound delicious. Like, that should be top of Galaxar's menu. Galaxar? Galaxar. <laughs> Galaxar. What? <laughs> that is from something I was watching over Christmas. What is it? That, sorry, that was Monsters vs. Aliens, uh, which I also watched over Christmas. I had a really highbrow viewing uh, selection. I saw Frozen for the first time over Christmas. Oh, my goodness. Well, you know, I didn't mind it. I, th- I, thought, it was, I thought it was actually okay, but it's, it's got my wife. It's got her in this icy thrall. And so she's now singing Let It Go all the time. And, you know, she's making ice palaces and has it, snowmen. Has it life. sort of become the, uh, yeah, no, the Disney equivalent of the thing? It's like a, it's set in a frozen place and it takes people over. <laughs> yeah. And they just become different, <laughs> except they just sing so tunes and, you know, want nice to build thing. snowmen all the time. Uh, but the geekiest thing I got over Christmas, that's what, what the question was. The geekiest thing I got over Christmas, uh, I probably have it with me. It's behind me right now because it's pissing down outside. Is my Yoda lightsaber umbrella, uh, the official Star Wars lightsaber umbrella, which I've wanted for years, and finally my sister got me one. I, I did notice you were carrying that, and it is a thing of beauty. It doesn't light up. Oh. It doesn't make a noise when you open it. But I've kind of I've come to terms with that because I think if you did, and if, if it did, and if you walked down the street with a glowing green, you know, stick in your hands, uh, it, it might draw attention to yourself more than you might. Might want people might think you just stepped out of Blade Runner, for example. <laughs> they might, or they might try and attack you and take the umbrella. True. But, but it's great because they they don't they don't, they no longer sell those. So my, I think my sister actually took some time to track it down, which is um, uh, unlike her. So thank you, thanks, sis, if you're listening to this. Um, if as ever you want to have your question read out in the Empire Podcast, you want us to consider your questions and do send them in via Twitter. We're at Empire Magazine. Use the hashtag Empire Podcast. You can Facebook us where we're Empire Magazine, or you can even email us if you have that technology. You can email us at podcast at empireonline.com. All very good. Time now for first guests of the new year. Eddie Redmayne and Felicity Jones are two of our finest young actors and they're both set to garner lots of Oscar buzz for their portrayals of Stephen Hawking and his wife Jane in James Marsh's The Theory of Everything. They spoke recently to Ali and Phil Dissimlian. 
We're joined today by Felicity Jones and Eddie Redmayne to talk about the theory of everything. I'd like to say, to begin, well done, you made me cry. I hope oh. you're pleased oh. with yourself. Good. <laughs> you, That's hor- all we wanted. you horrible people. <laughs> you wanted, yes, we have achieved. You wanted one journalist from Empire to cry. Well, you've done very well. How many times did you cry? Well, I just noticed that I'd cried. It, I was at the end of the film and went, oh. Oh, you this, is, a, this is what humans call sadness. <laughs> shed a tear. <laughs> this, is, this is bad news. Uh, but no, it's it's a very affecting film. I was wondering, from your perspective, was it was it difficult on set sometimes? Because this is not a traditional working title rom com, is it? Was it difficult? Oh, was it difficult? Now, now we've forgotten. It's so we've forgotten all the struggles and the arguments. Now we just say yes. Every day was a joy. Was, was a joy. <laughs> it was pretty rigorous. I think it was. Um, yeah, okay. I we both just felt such responsibility because we were playing real people and you know they're gonna see it eventually. So it's something you don't take on lightly. Um and we both just became really passionate about them and, and vehement about them and um and it was it was tough, but tough in a good way that you're you're you know, you're we were constantly we do lots of takes, but we always, you know, probably drove James Marsh, the director, crazy. Cause we're like, just one more, just one more. You know, he's like, no, we've got to move on because the light's going. But and and it was it was always just very discursive, and and um, we just wanted it to be as good as possible. So it was a good working relationship. Um, I interviewed James uh, uh, last earlier this year and he said that you guys were very invested in the film in a way that I guess sometimes you rap and then you move on to the next thing but he said you were constantly kind of involved and wanting to do sort of ADR if necessary and and seeing the post-production process taking shape is that fair was this one a bit more than the normal kind of professional experience I think I think it was I think it was and because of that 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 sense of responsibility because when we were prepping the film you know we met Stephen and Jane and Jonathan and the children and they allowed us into their lives and I'm one of those people when I see a film I totally believe that everything I see on, on screen is true. And so I feel it like is. There, there is, there is yeah. a great power in film. And that did make us feel that, 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 that there was a great responsibility. And I mean, f- for, for both of us as well, because we were playing these characters over a long period of time, and yet we weren't shooting chronologically. So we were jumping in and out. James allowed us and encouraged us to watch the dailies, to watch the rushes. And so it was also very rare for actors to see every little ounce of footage and so then long into the um, edit process James was so generous at showing us stuff but then encouraging us to go was there something I missed was there you know and and that was particularly with both of us the the different stages to be to remember that detail it was a great privilege I thought uh, absolutely and it also helps seeing the rushes early on you we could see the detail with which Benoit Delhomme who's the DOP and, and James were shooting it you know there'd be moments where they'd just be on Eddie's foot or Stephen's foot or Jane's hand and you it, we could see how um how detailed it was it was microscopic detail the, the camera was picking up what was it like watching the dailies of your face slamming into the floor because I watched that and when they put that in the trailer because it's Stephen the Hawking, sound effect as well which is yeah, he falls, so listeners. it hits you so hard doesn't it's, it it's a real thump it's, do you know what I, I did an interview the other day with Jennifer Lawrence and that was all she wanted to know she was like how do you do that I was like Jennifer don't you do like hardcore stunt movies she's like yeah but that was a I was like I loved it and I was saying how the poor guy who was the, the stunt guy on 
the Stephen Hawking biopic. It's not quite <laughs> yeah, the Marvel exactly. film. It was Easy like, right here, this guys. This the biggest day of <laughs> But the that shoot. was the biggest day. But it involved, I'll never forget, we were shooting it in John's, Cambridge, and I arrived thinking that, and, and he'd started tying my hands behind my back and putting out like crash mats, and then he would just let me go. And I'd like, I was like, why? And that, because your instinct is to pull your pull your hands out and then in the end I was like this is horrific and there were just like tourists going past taking photos of me it looked like I was doing sort of some bondage scene I was like anyway it's all very but how did you just fall onto a crash mat well you do it but you did it and then did they move it it in post no no, when you did it in the wide you could just fool yourself and then when in close up you only started from your knees because they were just and then they did tie my hands and then but then they also had a they had a pavement made out of like they'd painted a bit of padding am i giving away the secrets oh now we're all gonna look really closely and next see time, the padding you'll be telling me jupiter ascending isn't real next it's all real and i was all entirely method <laughs> you had a stuntman but you also had an on set or maybe offset but near set mathematician like this a is stunt true. physicist. A stunt physicist. Cool. <laughs> this You're is staring at the, at the blackboard with the formula, and you could just go, "Oh, that looks like there's a there's a plus sign in the wrong place." Call up <laughs> so, the guy. That is that how it was? That looks like a fun day's work. No, stunt physicist came in. He was actually an amazing man. One of Stephen's old students, who is now like a professor at Imperial in London. And I met stunt physicists before we started filming to try and edge someone who gave up science when they were like a child to educate me. And he, you know, he would start telling me about the intricacies of string theory and I'd be going, imagine I'm seven. Mm. <laughs> like, go back to what an <laughs> atom equals. Like, what is oxygen? <laughs> oh, shit. That's... Physics for dummies, <laughs> yeah, please. <genuinely. laughs> yeah. um, so he was very helpful. This is another question that was asked to James. You know, if you're at a dinner party and someone sits next to you and they're like, so kind of explain the theory of everything. Explain particle physics. Explain string theory. Can you do that now? Are you just like, can you explain that? Can you explain interstellar to people? I clearly won't be able to explain <laughs> interstellar. So like it's fair, but, but no, I find what was hilarious with these, Felicity studied English, James studied English, I studied history of art. And there were like months before we started filming, we were in Copenhagen where James lives, like working on the script. And we would, but we'd all come in and we'd go, so basically, okay, basically general relativity is, um, and then the other person would go, no, 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 no. So ba- basically, <laughs> isn't it? Like, and we just realised that. There's these really embarrassing conversations yeah. of three art students trying to explain <laughs> particle physics or black hole theory. It's actually really hard. Do you, do you guys? Can you go? I did history guys... and he did English. Right? Exactly. So oh, this is hopeless. Absolutely this no idea. terrible. No, if the apocalypse comes, we're all doomed, yeah. I think, to be honest. We'll but what I find also interesting is that like lots of, you know, those people that go, because this is very much a love story, but those people go, I wish it was the science story. Like, so many people I've met come out of this going, I didn't really get the science. <laughs> I sort of got the science, I didn't really get the science. And everyone sort of wants it to be, if, if people want it to be more rigorous scientifically, I'm like, well, how much? <laughs> Just watch a documentary. Really? You want to see a film you want to have you know you want to go on an emotional journey don't you yeah, i'd say I think so. we're just defending our film yeah. <laughs> who do that uh, <laughs> speaking of stuntmen uh i hope i hope it was you felicity who was actually carrying eddie yeah i had to go to, had to start working out in the gym because he may look really light but actually Taut he's muscle. 10 ton hefter <laughs> um yeah it was um there was a lot of heavy lifting in this film <laughs> seriously um, emotionally and uh, yeah yeah i realized actually being a carer you do have to be incredibly physically strong um so i remember we did the scene where i just uh, jane it was when they're packing the car and they're going on holiday and 
I sort of, Jane is sort of, she's getting the kids ready, getting them in the car, she's packing all the things in the boot, she's lifting Stephen, and I did think, God, I've done one day of this and I'm absolutely exhausted. I don't know how she did it for 25 years. I want to ask a completely random question. I mean, it feels like you guys are both on the cusp of, well, it's award season coming up. You're going to have a lot of awardsy type stuff, I'm sure, to experience. I want to take you right back to the beginning of your on-screen careers because you both came, you know, you were at, Ox- you were at Oxford, Felicity, and you were at Cambridge, obviously, Eddie, and then you know, came through the sta- a stage background and, and did TV films. Um, has anyone asked you about The Treasure Seekers recently, in which you play opposite <laughs> Kira Knightley? Yeah, it was... Tell me about it, The Treasure Seekers. Yeah, it's a great TV film. Because Kira Knightley um, plays a sort of a German princess and you're she, a bit of a sort of scallywag. <laughs> yeah, I, I actually saw there was a photo of it, um, of a, a, a kind of a still from the film, and we both look exactly the same. Like, Kira's got this lovely long hair, and then I'm just this sort of scally in the back with this, <laughs> <laughs> this sort of weird bob. Um, but, yeah, that, I mean, that, that was great fun. We spent most of that, that time, there was this amazing swing in a tree that we'd all, in between filming, run How and go and play on. Uh, we were... I think I was 11 and Kira was oh, 10. Oh, many Kira, many girls. I know, <laughs> the on, early days. It's on YouTube, you can totally check that out. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to. And your first, I mean, you worked with Tony Collette. You, oh, you didn't God, you work opposite that one. I thought German you were going Kira. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, that you was, started with Tony Collette? That was my first film, what? yeah. And she was so... high there. And then Robert De Niro. And, and obviously sharing a lot of screen time with Matt Damon and, and Anthony Jolie. Yeah, that was... was nerve-wracking? How was that? Terrifying, but you can see it in the film. You just see me looking perpetually terrified <laughs> the whole way through the film. I'll never forget, like, we, it was, I was so lucky. So it was my second job. I got cast, a film that Robert De Niro was directing... And went to America, was staying in a hotel in New York, like blacked out car to set, arriving set, a huge craft service. They take craft service really seriously in America compared to the British sets where you get a sort of piece of slightly shoddy ham. And a, a huge set's being built, paparazzi outside because Angelina, Jolie and Matt Damon were playing my parents. And uh, um, more importantly, I was playing their son. <laughs> and, um, and I arrive on set and then su- all those people are there and then suddenly there's a camera on your face in close-up. And it was like, and roll camera. And I just oh, genuinely really felt, I don't think I've ever sweated so hard. And as I say, like the whole way through the film, you can just see me looking. I so can't imagine trying not to get fired is basically all I'm doing. Absolutely terrifying, and I can't imagine Robert De Niro is known for being a little sort of taciturn. Should we say? Quite sure. I can't imagine he's going to come over and go, Eddie. That was you almost nailed it. Just one more time. I mean, what, do you remember any of the direction? What sort of direction? Well, do you know the amazing thing? The one thing I really did learn from him is he has this, um, um, particularly in an emotional scene. He will, he, and it was the time of film, so it was really expensive. But he would keep the camera rolling, and as soon as you finish a scene, you would go back to the beginning of it and channel that emotion, like pummel that down and start the scene again and just do take after take after take and and specifically in Les Miserables that te- technique was really helpful but in this as well we would do some of the emotional scenes wouldn't we, we would just go straight back into it try not to to spend too much time talking and discussing and yeah well you just it's about trying to lose your self-consciousness um and so the first I always find the first few takes you're overthinking it and you've it's when you've planned something at home and then you bring it to set and then it doesn't quite work so it takes a bit of time just to relax into it but that but that must be so expensive on film because the great thing about shooting on digital is it's so cheap so you can do these long 20 minute takes but um that's amazing to be able to do it can we ask about your next projects because you both have really interesting things coming up. Um, Juan Antonio Bayona, who of course did The Impossible, 
um, is really fascinating filmmaker, and you're working with Liam Neeson, who I think I misread the synopsis, but he's playing some sort of tree. <laughs> <laughs> he's a tree that turns into a monster. It's based on um, Patrick Ness's uh, book. It's a young uh, adult book, um, fantasy novel about uh, a young boy who is becoming a man and, and, and dealing with his mother who's dying of cancer. And, and also um, there's a grandmother character in it played by Sigourney Weaver. Um, but Biona is absolutely amazing. And he, so many of the things that we did in theory, he makes it so easy for you as an actor. He's just so, like loads of takes, trying things out. He plays um, Nicki Minaj before you do a take. <laughs> like anything to make you as relaxed That's as why possible. The Impossible was so good. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Um, but it's just been such a fantastic experience and I'm halfway through it now so um, but it's a beautiful beautiful story and a beautiful book and Eddie you're back with with Tom Hooper yeah so yeah, presumably you've worked with him a bunch now it's just all you don't even talk to each other it's so, all uh, kind of just mind no, there's just, a lot of talk <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, um, yeah no we're doing a film called The Danish Girl which I'm which, uh, just in beginning of prep for um, which is a true story about two artists in Copenhagen in the 1920s called Einar and Gerda Weiner. And Einar became one of the first, if not the first people to transition um, and became a woman, uh, Lily Elba. And it's a sort of film about, um, it's a love story and about identity. And, 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 and it's really interesting. It's a script that's been around for a wee while and they've been trying to make it into a film with various in various different guises. Um, but yeah, I'm, so I'm just beginning to immerse myself and educate myself in that world. So they're quite similar in many ways. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, thank you so much for uh, taking the time. Thank you. Guys. Thank you both. Great. Thank you, thank you very much. How were they, Ali? Were you all good? Lovely people. Lovely I people. find Eddie Redmayne very charming. He was yeah. really good on... Graham Norton recently where mm. he was asked how his performance well his audition performance for Bilbo Baggins was go go watch it because he he did it with a voice instead of doing his own voice he was like hello I'm Bilbo Baggins um, and he just bursts into it Anna Kendrick loves it because he waited well, to get the part to be fair <laughs> also Martin Freeman had that one in the bag yeah yeah like in a very big Baggins. very secure Baggins yeah. Yeah. yeah marked property of Martin Freeman <laughs> They moved the whole date of production because they wanted him. Yeah. Uh, Eddie, still come in. What? So I can humiliate myself. Yeah. Yeah. Come. No, no. Do that funny voice you were doing. Peter really wants to see it. Oh, yeah. No, you're definitely in with the shot getting the role. Can you do that again so we can record it? Peter <laughs> <laughs> uh, actually has its ringtone now. So. <laughs> I still want to see Finn Diesel's uh, Aragorn audition. I genuinely want to see that. And uh, Kylie Minogue auditioned as well for, for Aragorn. Uh, for Aragorn. <laughs> I would watch that. Oh, yeah. Uh, no, she auditioned for Barmir. She sings to the arrows, I can't get you out of my chest. No, she auditioned for uh, Liv Tyler's character, Arwen. Should we talk about some movie news? Has there been anything happening over the last few weeks while we've been off? There have been movie some wise. bits and pieces, yeah. yeah. Um, one that caught my attention, which I thought was was very exciting, as you know, the, the mantra around the Emperor office has been all Star Wars news is news. And and our other mantra, of course, is that all raid news is news, um, and uh, and so the two have come together in a beautiful melding with with the news that Eco Elias um, and his his crew um, have apparently been doing some work on Star Wars: colon, The Force Awakens. His crew being Yayan Ruyan, uh, who played Precoso, yes, in Raid Two, and Mad Dog in the first Raid, Indeed. and Chechup Araf Raman, 
uh, who plays the assassin in the raid too, and is an English teacher by trade. Really? Yes. You would not want to be late with your I'm homework for that. Not man. kidding. Uh, Eco, of course, being a phone salesman by trade. So <laughs> these guys are, and you know the guy in the first, the first raid, the guy with the machete who has that massive fight with him at the and um, with with uh, with uh, Rama. Yeah, and that, that you know he's just serious, hardcore, intense guy with the mad killer stare. Architect. Well, you don't want to mess with an architect. <laughs> yeah, do you? I've seen the Matrix. <laughs> yeah, but this one doesn't bore the <laughs> pants off you. He just he just slashes at you with a machete. Uh, but yeah, so they're is this confirmed? Are they definitely doing stuff? It was it was originally reported by Twitch and then confirmed apparently by the Hollywood Reporter. So it seems okay. to have some substance to it. Um, there's no details on what the heck they're doing. Um, whether they're playing characters, or doing some kind of performance capture, mm-hmm. or whether they're, you know, providing some kind of stunt choreography. I mean, we thought that, you know, production had wrapped, so it's it's kind of hard to know exactly what they would be doing if they were new characters. Uh, for me, performance capture maybe seems slightly more likely, um, making something move in a really cool fashion. But you know, this has got to be good news for uh, for any star- fight scenes in the new Star Wars. I would have thought. Mm. This is encouraging for me because it implies that they're using the Star Wars kudos to actually really take great talent, which may not be that well known, yeah. and do something with it. Star Wars has that power. It doesn't need to get, insert huge name here, you know. There was a part of me, a lot of people online are going, Benedict Cumberbatch is in everything right now. Helen sent me a funny cartoon where on someone's, uh, is it radioscopy? Is that? Uh, ultrasound. Ultrasound, that's the one. Um, slightly different. Benedict Cumberbatch's face crops up in inside someone's womb and, and the pregnant lady says he really does get everywhere but when that was announced as he might be part of it when I really hope not because they can have anyone like they could go up to pretty much anyone and this is just really encouraging that they're going for the great talent because as much as we love the raid there are plenty of people who have no idea what that is mm. and this might be their first taste of eco I'd be interested to see if they are playing characters whether they've just been hired as a, as a fight team because all the fights in the raid and the raid 2 were choreographed by um, by Yayan and Eco, Chechep uh, is was brought in specifically for the Raid Two to play that character, but he certainly he knows his stuff as well. I mean, he can, boy, he's a serious guy. Um, love the guy, but serious. Uh, but yeah, so I'd be really interested to see whether they're they're there to inject a little bit of oomph to the fight scenes, or whether they might be like Ray Park with Darth Maul, mm. actually presenting themselves as formidable foes, maybe, or or Jedi of some kind, you know, leaping around and doing whatever they can do. Very exciting. Very cool. Yeah. Cool. Mm. Turning uh, to the world of Marvel, which, as you know, we never talk about on this podcast. I mean, we basically ignore it all the time. Uh, they sort of come roaring out of the Christmas holiday with uh, some Ant-Man uh, promo work. There is both the poster, which is pretty hilarious. It's a teeny tiny uh, Ant-Man, a teeny tiny Paul Rudd in the middle of a big white sort of space with the uh, title of the film as well, which I think is very clever. Very good idea. Just different. It, 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 could, have been a, it could have been a bunch of floating heads or it could have been a big explosion with, with sort of Paul Rudd's uh, face in front of it or something. And it's, <laughs> it's good. And the other thing that's come out is the uh, first teaser trailer, which of course is always uh, a little bit early. You know, there's, there's not a lot of the effects work done, so they've had to rely more on sort of Michael Douglas doing voiceover and couple of gags from from Paul Rudd and and it it's a teaser trailer I mean it it's, it teases some of the stuff that's happening we see a little bit of shrinking we see a little bit of some of the other characters and it's it you know, does the job I suppose the biggest problem it's got is how does it in just a couple of minutes or a minute and a half in this instance put across the very fine balancing act it's going to have to pull off both for the comedy and for the action and for the inherent preposterousness of the conceit this man has the 
has the ability through a suit to shrink down to a very, very small size. You can also control ants and fly on them and has super strength. Uh, so, yes, when you say it out loud, it sounds a bit silly, but it looks promising. Let's let's see how it goes. Yeah, I mean, I love the, the poster. The poster's fantastic. Um, uh, That's exactly the route they, sh- they, they should have gone down. The, the treader for me is fine, but it seems a little generic to me. Mm. Uh, it's 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 kind of interesting to me that after Guardians of the Galaxy, which came straight out and basically went, we're different and weird and quirky, you know, with that poster tagline, you're welcome, and, you know, with... Yeah. The, the, right from the off, the trailers were like, this is going to make you laugh. They were memorable as well. Yeah. They really stuck in your head. The Uga Chaka song stuck in your head. Yeah. It, it was perfect, pretty much. This feels... There's a couple of things about the Ant-Man trailer. One is, is haunted, obviously, by the ghost of Edgar Wright. You just cannot help but watch this and start thinking what this would have looked like had Edgar directed the film. Um, and also you can't you, you look at it and you think hang on totally and this is as Ali says a slightly preposterous <laughs> slightly preposterous character um, it's going to be comedic in tone we're guessing but it's a very serious trailer right until the end when Paul Rudd kind of goes is it too late to change the name uh, and you, you know, that balance of tone is going to be very interesting to see how they handle it over the next few yeah. months presumably the next thing we see from it is going to be much more emphasising the funny funniness yeah um, there was also some some much sadder news uh, over Christmas, which was there are a couple of obituaries that we should we should touch upon. Um, first up uh, for me is uh, Edward Herman, um, who was well, who I know best probably these days as the as the family patriarch in the Gilmore Girls. Um, but I, you know, I, f- I first remember him being brilliant in the Lost Boys um, as Goldie Hawn's appalling husband in Overboard. Um, and he has an incredible career. He worked with uh, Woody Allen, Oliver Stone, the Coens, Martin Scorsese. Um, he he was a, a bit of a sort of giant in in TV and on screen. Generally, is more of a character actor than than a sort of a leading man. He would apparently endured months of treatment for brain cancer, but passed away peacefully with his family. So, um, so yeah, tributes mm. to him. Absolutely, uh, I will always remember him for Max from the Lost Boys. Uh, talk about Billy Whitelaw as well, the great yeah. Billy Whitelaw. Um, there's a wonderful piece written by Edgar Wright who directed during her last film Hot Fuzz uh, on his uh, website so you go want to go and check that one out it's it's really really lovely talking about how he persuaded her to be in the film and how she knew it was going to be her last film even though she was making it uh, fantastic fantastic actress uh, so many great uh, film and TV credits under her belt over the years for me though she will always be Mrs. Baylock from The Omen yeah. utterly terrifying one of the great screen villains of all time, uh, and uh, from one of my favourite films of all time. So uh, she will be missed, Billy Whitelaw. Beep, 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 That's the breaking news noise. It is Friday morning, the day after we record the podcast, usually. Uh, the BAFTA nominations are out. I've taken myself up to the pod booth with Phil Dissimlin. Hello, Phil. Hi, Chris. Not on the podcast this week, but no. you've come in especially for this. Guest star. Guest star. Guest star, Phil Dissimlin. Uh, we're going to very, very quickly talk about the BAFTA nominations, um, the best film list. It was Birdman, Boyhood, The Theory of Everything, The Grand Budapest Hotel, which got 11 nominations leading the way, and The Imitation Game. Interesting list? Safe list? Solid list? What do you think of it? I think it's a pretty solid list on the whole, with one glaring omission, which is, of course, Mike Lee's Mr. Turner. Oh, a lot of people up in arms about that. What's going um, on? Yeah. Yeah, what and is going on? That was in my very much close to the top of my top ten for last year, and I think in common with a lot of people. Um, I don't know whether it was just a film that critics loved, 
and audiences were a bit... It's made six million so far. It's Mike Lee's biggest movie. Mm. So audiences clearly have seen it and liked it enough to keep going back and back and back. So it seems a bit strange to me to that one. I kind of wonder if Timothy Spall's omission in the Best Actor race may have been coloured by the fact that a lot of people then kind of summed up his performance as just a series of grunts, which absolutely is not, of course. Uh, But it was very, very easy to shorthand his performance, I think, and go, he just just turned up and went... Gosh. Which uh, he didn't. I have heard that a few times, but it seems egregious. It does seem egregious, but that's the thing about these these Oscar and BAFTA campaigns, that they can be derailed by the smallest thing. It's it's so weird. Uh, and I do wonder whether that had some effect on some people. It seemed to be so prevalent. I saw a lot of things on Twitter about how he was just Mr. Grunter and all that sort of stuff, and it just seems bizarre to me. But the biggest omission for me in terms of the acting categories, I mean, it's great to see Ray Fiennes in there for Grand Budapest Hotel. He's phenomenal in that film. It's great to see a comedic turn being given his due. Uh, and Jake Gyllenhaal for Nightcrawler as well. Great. But where's David Oyelowo for Selma? Now, this is, you know, this is obviously an anecdotal thing. This is not indicative of wider feeling within BAFTA. But for example, I went to a BAFTA screening of Selma a few weeks ago, uh, followed by a Q&A with David Oyelowo. And as he came out on the stage, uh, the entire auditorium rose to give him a standing ovation. I have never seen this before mm. at, a, at a Q&A for anything, whether it's BAFTA, Oscar, it doesn't matter. I've never seen the audience give uh, an actor a standing ovation before. He's phenomenal in that film. Uh, and so it just makes you wonder, what happened? It is a strange one. Very strange. The film itself is fine. It's good. Um, you know, it's, mm. a, it's a powerful movie, slightly rudimentary, but... Well, he could he's, win. He's amazing. He could win Best Actor at the Oscars and not get a BAFTA nomination he and could. be a British actor. And what's going on with that? It's hard to say. I've seen the film, and you're right. He's absolutely stupendous in it. Mm. So, don't know. Strange. Strange one. Strange one. Very strange. That uh, film got omitted completely. Uh, the likes of Foxcatcher didn't really get any traction in terms of Best Film. Steve Carell, interestingly, and both he and Mark Ruffalo are in Best Supporting, which is interesting I imagine that's a decision that's been made specifically to put them in that category yes we're slightly strange I suppose they see Channing Tatum as the lead but really it's got three leads or three support on the poster alone it says Steve Carell his name is first Steve Mm. Carell Channing Tatum Mark Ruffalo so there's there's always a bit of sleight of hand isn't there with you know who's support and who's Who's uh, yeah. who's top liner? Laura Dern in Wild would have been nice to see some yeah. love for her. Yeah. Um, she's really good in that film, but uh, no. Uh, what's the, what's the, the the thing you're most pleased about? Grand Budapest Hotel. Yeah, Ray Fiennes, phenomenal. So good. I yeah. love the film. I love him in it. What he does is so difficult, and he does it so well. I would love to see him win, but uh, we shall see. You can quibble about this endlessly. Uh, until the end of days the thing I'm most pleased about however uh, great to see Paddington in Outstanding British Film well done Paddington the likes of 71 are in there as well slightly disappointed that Calvary didn't get too much love I think that film's fantastic as well uh, and the, the bigger bigger omissions for me are a yellow and spall in, in actor but uh, mm. otherwise you know it's a fairly decent list Salt list some great films in there some films in there that maybe you could argue don't deserve to be there over films like Whiplash and Nightcrawler but it's a, it's a fine list. Um, and we'll obviously have a special podcast to discuss the uh, best foreign language films. <laughs> we will, yeah. We will. <laughs> I have to run. So <laughs> Another time. Another time. Is that the, oh, is that the time? You Bill? promise. I really got to go. Later. I'll see you later. See you later. Okay. I'll see you later. Come back here later. Okay. I'm, just, okay. I'm going to do the breaking news outro music. If you just bear with me two seconds, I've just got to get into character. Beep, 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 beep. And now we return you to your regularly scheduled podcast.
Yeah, but there's there's also some other uh, movie news that happened this week, which is really interesting. Uh, so Daredevil, Netflix have, have announced that Daredevil will hit Netflix in uh, April. That's the 13-part first of their Marvel uh, TV series. Uh, and all 13 parts will hit at once. They will. Which yeah. is interesting. I thought they would go down the weekly nah, that's little, what, little feeding. I'll feed you. Uh, that's, you that's not what Netflix does. No, it isn't. It isn't. Uh, you know... It's going to be interesting to see. I'll have to watch all 13 in a go. Just book Don't like binge watching. Then. Don't well, like it. Then don't. You have that freedom, Chris. The freedom no. is yours. I have to because then other people will see it. Oh, Netflix. Netflix. I, Thank just, you. Just think of the, you know, the injustice of, that we live in a world where other people have seen Agent Carter and I have not. I mean, you just have to <laughs> learn to deal with these things. Well, I can tell you oh. that in the first episode, sorry. Oh, oh, I won't go on about it. All right. Have you seen it? I have. Oh. Yes. Good. It's good fun. It's a great sort of throwback, sort of retro spy thriller. Hayley Atwell is, as ever, fantastic as Carter. It's practically the role she was born to play. Not that she can't play any role, which because she is brilliant. And uh, it's really, really good. If you really enjoyed the one shot, it very much captures that spirit, but just expands the world, gives her a fantastic sort of uh, relationship with Howard Stark, gives her a fantastic sort of, not relationship, relationship, just sort of back and forth, witty banter, friendship, and also with James Darcy as Edwin Jarvis, who is the perfect snidely sort of Jeevesy type butler, sort of, you know, slightly aloof and slightly, but is also kick-ass, and it's, it's really good. I really enjoyed it. Well, that's made me feel so much better. <laughs> Ali, didn't you have other news? Ghost in the Shell is a very, 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 very highly respected well, the jury's out, really, on how you want to call this, but it was originally a manga. It was originally a comic uh, in Japan, and then it was turned into an anime feature film. And it is so revered and loved and cherished and cuddled. Uh, it's about a bionic policewoman in uh, the future. Put it this way, in quality Japanese uh, tagline work, the tagline for the film is, People love machines in 2029 AD. Open quotes. Who are you? who slips into my robot body and whispers to my ghost. Oh, Japan. Uh, so, yeah, it's the story of, uh, of a kind of a Matrix-like. The Wachowskis uh, were really, really into this, and a variety mm. of other films like it. In fact, you may even notice, if you, if you re-watch this film, The Ghost in the Shell, uh, you may notice quite a few direct lifts, like action beat lifts from this in uh, The Matrix uh, movies, I should say. Anyway, the big news is that the long-mooted Hollywood remake is happening. And they have their star. Uh, and it is Scarlett Johansson, who's playing what seems like a similar role to Lucy, which made big bucks in the box office last year, and I thought was a bag of pants. Uh, but it's done well. People have obviously liked it, uh, who weren't me. And she's suiting up for it. She'll play this bionic uh, cop with a name that's almost impossible to not get entirely wrong. Motoko Kusanagi, uh, a cyborg cop, and uh, part of Section 9, who go around trying to find the puppet master who is this hacker extraordinaire in the surprisingly near future now. I mean, it used to be back when I watched it quite a long way away, but now it's actually just around the corner. Shit. Yeah, Rupert Sanders is directing it. Uh, he's obviously the man that did Snow White and Huntsman, and he's been attached for a little while. And uh, yeah, it's 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 going forward now. Mm. It's yeah, For a little while there, it looked like um, uh, Margot Robbie might be doing it, but she, of course, is now doing uh, Suicide Squad for Warners and DC. So here we have Scarlet. This is an interesting one. I actually sat down and watched this last night because the last time I saw it was sometime in the 90s and I don't, mm. didn't really remember it. And 
I was amazed by, I mean, yes, I think the, the big problem, the big challenge I think with this film is, is that lots of films have lifted ideas from it since and you've got to work around those. But it still has its own sort of style and its own kind of edge. I mean, that music especially, uh, if they can get that kind of creepy, very gorgeous creepy music, then I think we might be on something and, and get the tone to match that. I think we'd be really on something. Um, a slight concern is that, you know, Johansson's done things awfully like this before, not just, um, you know, the kick-ass stuff that she's done in, in Avengers and in Lucy, but also the slightly more esoteric st- side of things. She's also kind of done in, like, her and, and under the skin even to, to a very tiny extent. So it, it feels like maybe it's too nailed on, but on the other hand, maybe that means that she's the perfect person to ca- tackle it because she's obviously interested in all this stuff. Mm. Um I do think that you could make it make a little bit more sense without, you know, That's fair. losing too much. The movie's very confusing. Yeah. The original movie's very confusing, and not just because of subtitles. And you'll notice it kind of flashes up on screen and go, wait, 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 what, what, what? And you have to rewind in the middle of an action sequence. Wait, what does that mean? Yeah. Who's in whose body is often a question I was asking myself. Where's, where's the mind? Ah. Yeah. Oh, by the way, if you're in this robot body, you tend to have superpowers, I should point out. <laughs> you are super strong and such. So that'll be fun. Yeah, I'll be. I'd be interested if they do that bit at the end with, with the sort of the hulking out scene, because that seems like something that Hollywood would usually avoid. Um, if you've seen it, you'll know what I mean. If you haven't, I don't want to say any more in case I ruin it. But um, yeah, a good movie though. Ghost in the Shell. Go see it. I saw someone on Twitter say that the major worry, the major concern for them with this movie was that it's produced by Avi Arad, um, who's been attached to the project for a long, long time. Avi Arad, of course, is the former head of Marvel. Uh, he was the guy who set the ball rolling, I guess, for the that eventually became Marvel Studios when Kevin Feige took over. He then subsequently went on to produce uh, the Ghost Rider movies and the Spider-Man movies, uh, to which he's still attached. Um, but I don't know. I think Avi Arad's a massive fan of, of manga and anime. He's even written a manga called The Innocent, uh, which wasn't bad, um, as far as my understanding of these things go. Uh, so I think he treats this with reverence and... Uh, I think it'll be okay. We shall see. As I mentioned earlier on, this Empire podcast is brought to you in association with Squarespace. Uh, Here is Ali to explain the science bit. Hello and welcome to the science bit of the Empire podcast, where Ali, the editor, that's me, tells you a bit more about our sponsor, Squarespace, and how to make use of their free trial and discount deal. If you're not already in the know or missed Chris saying it earlier, Squarespace is the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create a professional website, blog, portfolio, or online store. For a free trial and 10% off your first purchase on new accounts, go to squarespace.com and use our offer code EMPIRE. That's one word, EMPIRE. Here are a few more reasons why you might want to use Squarespace. For starters, Squarespace is very easy to use, as well as being user-friendly and doing all the tricky stuff for you. That's search engine optimization, hosting and making your site mobile, tablet, portable device friendly. For starters, they've also got a huge vault of pre-prepared designs and style options for you to be getting on with and then tweak to your taste. If you sign up for a year, you get a free domain name and you'll enjoy an on-hand support team working 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. All for $8 a month. You'd have to change that into pounds, obviously, if you're from Britain. With, as mentioned earlier, a free trial and 10% off your first purchase with the Empire Podcast's very own offer code, Empire, via squarespace.com. Thank you for listening. Here is the rest of the show, which will seamlessly start again now. Uh, also, I'm very intrigued this week. There's a couple of other little teeny little teeny little tidbits I want to talk about um, that uh, Born 5 has a new release date it's going to be out in uh, July 29th 2016 but more interestingly 
And the screenplay for it will, re- will be written not by Tony Gilroy, but by Paul Greengrass and Matt Damon themselves, which is very, very interesting, along with uh, Greengrass's longtime editor, Christopher Rouse. Hmm. Apparently, they all came up with the idea for the newborn movie. So that's very, very interesting. And I think if you're worried about quality control, I that, think we're okay. That would seem to put some quality issues at rest. I think we're okay. And then, because I'm a big fan of uh, of neat segues, uh, Michael Keaton is in talks to star alongside Tom Hiddleston and J.K. Simmons in Skull Island. The, uh, or sorry, Kong Skull Island. Kong, colon, Skull Island, which is uh, coming out, I think, now in 2017. Is that right? It's coming out in 2017? I believe so, yes. It got pushed back. So that's very interesting. Why am I uh, saying that in the interest of segue? Well, <laughs> it just so happens. Because, wouldn't you believe it, Michael Keaton is our second guest this week. He is, of course, a movie star who mounted a comeback after playing a superhero in Tim Burton's Batman movies, which presumably gave him unique insight into his new role in Alejandro G. Inarritu's Birdman, in which Mr. Keaton plays a movie star mounting a comeback after playing a superhero. Interesting. He spoke to Ali and Phil once again when he came to London recently. Enjoy. We are sitting in a room with Michael Keaton in honour of Birdman, which is a movie that we as a magazine, Empire Magazine, have given five whole British stars to. Holy moly. I want to ask you about the voice, not only of your character, but of your character's character, yeah. Birdman. Yeah. How did you do that gravelly balls <laughs> voice? When we were making uh, Batman, I'm uh, annoyingly logical. And uh, even though it is a superhero movie or whatever you want to call them I don't really know what you want to call them it's a uh, based on a comic book character you know and you're allowed to kind of fool with uh, reality somewhat or or logic somewhat there were I said to Tim I said look you know we were rehearsing a scene or getting or, or staging a scene you know setting up blocking the scene and I'm standing on the street and I'm fairly exposed not as Bruce Wayne but as, as Batman and and, and there's this conversation slash kind of confrontational scene i can't remember exactly remember exactly what it was but i said you know i wait this this doesn't work this doesn't work i said why would why would they not you i've had this conversation from here for me to you and why would somebody say hey everybody look it's bruce wayne we just figured out who batman is you know what i mean you know what I, mean? I can't do this i don't know how to play this and i and i get that it's you know i get the i get the what what we're really making, but I just don't know how to do that. I don't know how to do things like that. I mean, even when I did the other guys, Adam McKay and Chris Henchy will tell you, I said, I, I don't want to make a big deal of this, but I need to ask you certain questions about this guy. I know what we're doing. It's ridiculously silly and fun. Yeah. I don't know where to start unless I have certain answers. I just don't know how to do it. It's not like I'm so cool. I just don't literally know how to do it. Yeah. Can I just leap in quickly? Sure. The TLC lyrics. <laughs> did you? Which is so great. Did people come out to the street and go, don't go chasing waterfalls? Yes, I, that's one of my favorite things they do. I mean, people come up and quote my lyric, quote my lines from movies. I have 90% of the time, I have no idea what they're talking about. But this time, every time they do that, it makes me laugh. Anyway, so real quickly, we're having this. Uh, so I say to him, "So I gotta, we gotta make an adjustment. First of all, I gotta play this on an angle. We gotta drop me into the kind of in the shadows of blah blah blah." And Tim, that, that Tim probably thought of that actually. He probably said, "Okay, here's how we'll fix some of that." But here's what I said. I said, "I had a whole thing I did. We you know when he once he starts to go into Batman mode, out of Bruce Wayne mode. I can't remember. I, I was talking about this the other day. I think I wore." Uh, contacts 
thrill subtly changed my eyes, I think. I can't remember. I did that for another movie, maybe. So anyway, I said, he goes into a kind of different state. And I said, and what happens is, the register of his voice changes. I'm just saying, well, here's what I'm going to do. And so we're getting ready to shoot the first thing where <coughs> I come on, he says. Uh, also, he said, I think they, he, the line was, what are you, originally? And I said, I think you should say, who are you, I think. Something like that, to set up, I'm Batman, right? So I drop in register, and I kind of come up with this voice just to alter it and to be, you know, make it arguably kind of fun and, like, you know, like cool sounding, but not really thinking about that so much, just playing the reality of, I can't sound like Bruce Wayne, everybody, I'm busted. So I tell Alejandro the story, and then I go, and so we're doing it, I just do the thing where I go, I'm Batman, and he goes fucking crazy. And then he goes, he goes, Chivo, Emmanuel Lubetsky, DP, says, come here, listen to this. And so he goes, do that thing. <laughs> and so I do it, and he goes, that, we have to do that when we do Birdman. And I go, um, all right. And I'm, we haven't shot any of the Birdman stuff yet, so I'm going, okay, whatever. I'm not going to really think about it. Then as we start to do it, because we did that in post, but then we start to do this voice, and I start to work from that. And he pushes and pushes, no. And he's rewriting constantly, and we're shooting those things over and over and over again and rewriting it. Go back the next day and do it. And the voice kept evolving. So that's how the voice kind of came out of that. And then it just got to be really more and more and more, you know, because he just wanted more and more. Was he doing take after take after take? Was it like, I oh, know I want, I want smells it was like day balls. after day? It was 18th, yes, time. Yes, yes, 19th yes, time. yes, 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 wow. yes. I know it was a grueling shoot, it was quite a short shoot, and it's a technical a filmmaking tour de force. It has that kind of feeling of a really grand cinematic ex- experiment almost, yeah. like something out of Brunel. And you've got Chivo Lubitsky who shot Gravity, and there's an element of the camera being, you know, these long tracking shots. Did it feel like that when you were filming? Did it feel different to the other films that you've worked on? Did it feel experimental yes. or theatrical? Yes, yes and no, but mostly yes. Yeah, it felt like you just said, I, I was entering an ex- we were entering an experiment, which made it really exciting. Um, and then you basically have to tr- really just drop back into what you do anyway. But you had to be... I had to be, we had to be, I suppose. I don't really know. I haven't talked about this with other, the other actors. I don't want to be camera aware. I, when I show up, I, I just want to be present in the scene and cameras are where they are. And I'm not, not that I don't sometimes check the size of the lens just to know some things, but I almost never do the, even that anymore. I just do, just shoot me like you, like there's no camera here in the room. So that's my goal every time. And I try to get better and better and better and better and refine it the more I do this for a living. That said, I had to do that and at the same time be quite camera aware in this case because you had to help out. You had to make sure it's one camera. You, you, you had to make sure you were in frame at the correct time and that the camera operator actually would be like running down the street getting set up to, to catch you and then maybe Zach Galifianakis coming up behind me and then walking down a sidewalk. So you had to, we were all trying to make this together, so you had to be helpful to the camera operator and to Chivo, which was interesting do you remember the day you were fitted for those pants for your Times square moment <laughs> did you have any say fitted in the, in the underwear you no know, that's that as silly as that is that's actually a really good question i'm thinking <laughs> i'm thinking wait a minute you know i remember instinctively knowing that would look the silliest and 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 the black socks is a brilliant touch 
just because it just gets more and more sad. Uh, I, wait, I'm actually going to try to think about this because I think sometimes when I read scripts, I thought everybody felt like this. I already see the picture. And so sometimes I'm surprised when I show up and I see the set and I go, what is this? And they go, what do you mean? What is this? Blah, blah, blah. blah. And I go, oh, wow, that's wild. I never saw it like that. I always saw it like this. And, and so did, uh, I don't think it was written. And so did uh, Alejandro. Uh, there might, I'm thinking, there might have been a discussion. Should he be wearing boxers? And I think immediately everybody went, no, that's not going to look nearly pathetic enough. <laughs> So you haven't had Calvin Klein on the phone for their next campaign. <laughs> when you finished this film, did, was your, was, did you want to go and do another movie straight away or did you want to go and do something on stage? I wanted to do nothing. I wanted to do nothing but sleep. You have a big ranch in, Wyoming, in Montana, not mm. Wyoming. Is it Wyoming or Montana? Montana. Montana. So uh-huh. did you just go back and, and just... Yeah, almost just immediately, yeah. yeah, yeah. See, the, see the dogs and yeah. recover. Yep hang with the dogs and horses yeah and hang out with my pals and my friends yeah uh yeah i did for as long as i could and then i kind of stupidly took another movie happens to be a good movie uh and now i'm doing all the publicity for this after having just finished the movie so looking forward to some uh nap time what's the good movie i have to ask it's called spotlight tom mccarthy directing with once again another really really good cast uh mark ruffalo who's here shooting something somewhere. I'm going to try and see him for dinner. Uh, and uh, Rachel McAdams and John Slattery and Leah Schreiber and uh, uh, who else is there? I don't know, but it's, That's it's a, a great good, cast. Yeah, it's a great a good cast. director as well, obviously. Yeah. Um, and Mark Ruffalo. Yeah. Another Hulk. Yeah, I know. Two Hulks in a row, obviously. Yeah, yeah. Did you talk... I know, two Hulks in a row, two back Double Hulkage. Did you talk to Ed <laughs> Norton about, about yeah, his I experience? I want to point out, I know this is radio. He, he, when he said double Hulkage... He put two thumbs up at the same time. So, so fucking pathetic. Double hawkage like this. It was so geeky. Sorry. Please, can we get a camera in here? <laughs> Super cool. Yeah. yeah. Ouch. <laughs> he didn't really, but that would have really been sad if he did. Just socks and pants. Yeah. Socks and pants. <laughs> yeah. Two thumbs up. Winking. Double hawkage. Weak. <laughs> Birdman was in three Birdman movies. You were in two Batman movies the third one i gather wait wait true. catch me up do that again do Birdman that had there were three birds yes, yes he yes. turned down number right. four that's right but you obviously turned down number three when it yeah. came to batman is yeah. it true that you you popped your head around and saw 10 minutes of the third one and thought you made the right call in not doing that i made the right call without ever having seen it um <laughs> <laughs> and then i, I did i did see a, a bit of it and I, I didn't really i didn't see enough of it to to know you know really frankly yeah. i just looked at it and went it, it, you know, I don't know. It just wasn't an interesting direction to go, I don't think. The character in this film, in Birdman, has a poster of Birdman. I think it's Birdman 3, uh, in his, you know, dressing room. Do you have either a poster of Batman or Birdman, the actual film, in your ranch or at your house? No, well, there haven't been any... Oh, wow, I didn't think of that. No, i got to get one of those. Uh, wow, that just hit me. No, I do have some... Um, have you seen the one-sheets? Oh. They're cool, aren't They're they? so cool. So cool. I know. And, and you know, there's one for every city. Which I just saw Toronto when I was working in Toronto, and this one here is very cool. Sydney's got the Opera House. Really? Yeah. It's awesome. So uh, I do somewhere, I think, have uh, Batman. I think I've got a Batman poster somewhere. I think Um, there'll be a new level of meta if in your office at home there is a poster of either Batman or Birdman. Yeah, yeah. Wow, you know, that's a very cool idea. Yeah, I'm going to do that. 
Right. Thanks for reminding me. <laughs> my pleasure. By the way, he did it without any thumbs up. No just, thumbs up. That's my yeah, shtick. Really oh, it's cool. embarrassing. <laughs> um, yeah. the, it, it is a great poster, though. It's one of our favorites of the year. And a really brilliantly marketed film as well uh, yeah. that, that takes you into it, into that world yeah. of Birdman, um, which is a world I think all of our listeners should go and experience firsthand. I just wondered, you know, it obviously touches on your relationship, or at least the character's relationship. By the way, I had this suggestion. Alejandro and I have talked about actually doing another doing a Birdman but doing it exactly like the movie we kind of say he didn't wasn't going to make anymore do say you know actually make a Birdman movie like you would make like a big studio would make a kind of horrible <laughs> and Jack's make one like that and like this is the unexpected Birdman the unexpected or the unexpected virtue of ignorance and I'd say this one should be Birdman we were just fucking around the first time. <laughs> I would watch the hell out of that. Like, Who would be his nemesis, though? I don't know. We could create some... I don't know. That'd be, yeah, then you could create a whole slew of uh, evil villains. Yeah. I think yeah. they made that, though, didn't they? Condor Man. Is there a Condor it. Man? Condor Man. Yeah, really? with Michael Crawford. Is that true? Yeah. It's Superbly bad. It's really bad. Really? It's really bad. You'd love it. I mean, in terms of this. <laughs> um, <laughs> we were, sorry, I'm going to interrupt. The third interruption here, but... In your mind, what is the backstory to Birdman? Is there an alter ego to Birdman? Does he... What does he do? I'm, I'm going to sound like, a, a, like I'm inefficient. I created a backstory for Riggin. Right. I didn't create... I didn't think of a backstory, but boy, that would be fun to think about, uh, of what the story... What those probably were about. You know, he laid that on me. Uh, thinking back, Alejandro kind of said... Because we talked about it for a minute. He said he just kind of had this image in his head. And when he was a kid, he said he read something where there was a kind of character in Mexico uh, that that reminded him of this. And he just came up with the idea of that, that kind of imagery, you know. I don't know. Other superheroes are... How many superheroes are there that are based on uh, non-human things? Uh, Spider-Man. Spider-Man. Uh, Hulk is what? Just a thing. Gamma radiation. Yeah, that's not an animal. No, there's no. Uh, wait, Spider-Man, uh, Batman, Condor Man, Condor Man, Condor Man. Jeez, he just did the two thumbs thing again. Jesus. <laughs> anyway, I interrupted you, Phil. What were you saying? <laughs> um, I was just going to ask about something. You've been in some of the most beloved roles of the last sort of twenty or so years. Um, obviously, Beetlejuice is one. Yeah, and um, we talked when you came when you when you came to promote your directorial debut. Um, I'm assuming it's a debut, and there there'll be others. Debut, yeah, one or one two, yeah. Merry gentlemen, and, and you were enthusing about that, and there's been constant rumor on the internet about a Beetlejuice, yeah. another Beetlejuice movie, yeah, another Beetlejuice. When was the last time you saw Tim Burton, and, um, and, and what's the latest on that? Oh boy, the latest is this conversation keeps coming up, yeah. and. It's now reached a point where you, I go, I, I don't know. I have yeah. no idea at this point. There was like, it was, there was, there was a, a back and forth, I don't know, six months ago between Tim and me, Tim and myself and Graham, a uh, guy Tim, I think wants to, I think wants to write it. Um, and I would say that at this point, I'm so kind of, uh, I don't think about it much anymore, it's too, which is too bad because I, I, 
when I finished it, I said, oh man, this is the one thing I'd do again. You know? <laughs> um, like probably a month later. Uh, that's probably not true, like six months later or a year later. But but I, I really don't know. But it's so original. Um, and I'm not sure. I think Tim is starting another movie now or just fi- or in the middle of another movie now. He's just finished Big Eyes. Big Eyes, yeah, yeah which I'm, it looks so cool. Um, obviously, you know, you need him around in some capacity. Um, uh, but, you know, he, he's, he's so original, you know. He's such an artist. And then, you know, you get to be with another one like Alejandro, you know. Um, and, you know, I was thinking about this the other day. I've, I've done movies where I am the title you know what i mean and and i i thought wait a minute does this is this does this happen all like i did a movie called mr mom i what it's a name mr mom i am mr mom batman is a name you know what i mean birdman is a name uh wait there's another beetlejuice obviously is in other words the title of the movie is me wait there's another one um there should be one called ray nicolette is all i can say ray nicolette was called johnny dangerously Mr. Mom, right? There was another one I talked the other day, like some one of the smaller ones. That's kind of wild when you think about it. I don't know. What, that's pretty cool, though. Ray Nicolette was a weird, char- cool character. We're big fans. Hmm. I think we have to wrap up shortly. But last question: Okay, uh, Toy Story Four has been announced. Really? Yes. Wow. You didn't know that. I didn't know that because we're kind of hoping that Ken's going to be back. I know that would be cool. I, when they so when I was on the phone, I was in my kitchen. I get this call. I said these guys from Pixar want to talk to you. I said, Oh, cool. You know, the, those guys are really talented. And they say, hi, uh, blah, blah, blah. They talk about four sentences. And said, when they said we were thinking of you, the phone literally fell out of my hand laughing down on the floor. And I don't know why. I don't even know why. I didn't go, oh, that's interesting. Okay, well, let's talk. The notion that there would be a Ken just made me fucking laugh. I don't know why. It just made me laugh. <laughs> Us too. <laughs> I'm keen for a Ken spinoff movie. Yeah, I think that would work well. <laughs> yes, good idea. Ken, the movie. Yeah. Anyway, it's been a great pleasure. All right, um, thanks, fellas. Thank you so much. All thank right. you very much. All right, guys. See you later. How was he? Livewire? Funny? Michael Keatony? He was great. He was great. Uh, there's a bit which is slightly embarrassing, but as you heard in the interview, he got the idea that Phil was a massive, massive comic book nerd for some reason, and with a double thumbs up thing, right? So you'll all have heard that, but... He was like, uh, you probably want a photo with a double thumbs up, right? Ha, 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 ha. And Phil said, yeah, right. Um, understandably, as you would. And uh, so he does a double thumbs up. And you think, this is going to be the best photograph ever. It's Michael Keaton next to Phil, double thumbs up, double, double thumbs up. The guy taking the photograph basically took a photograph of the wall. There's like a blurry blob. Oh. Um, Who was the guy? His assistant or someone's assistant. It was very quick. I mean, there was no time to press the button on the iPhone that makes it focus. Well, I say button, the bit on the screen. Uh, so yeah, looking at the image is almost more memorable. Oh, look at that blob! Oh, do you remember that fuzzy bit? Oh yeah. Oh, Michael Keaton. Do you have it on your phone or is it? Just oh, it's on Phil's, on Phil's phone. Unbelievable! Unbelievable! Uh, let's start our extended review section with uh, a quick look back at Birdman and the Theory of Everything, both of which opened in the UK on Jan first. Birdman in London slightly before that, of course, uh, in selected cinemas. Uh, so just very very quickly, because most people will have already seen them. Birdman. Mm. We gave it five stars. That is about right for me. I thought it was absolutely wonderful. Um, at the risk of sounding like a jazz fan, which I'm not, it felt like jazz in the sense that it just had that freewheeling kind of side to it. It didn't really stop. There were no breaks. You didn't really step out of it at any point and catch your breath. There wasn't a scene change that kind of jarred you out of out of whatever mood you were in. And, and that actually, you know, 
was really, I don't want to say powerful, that sounds too kind of pretentious, but it was really involving and it really got you into the headspace of the characters. Um, and I loved that. I thought that was great. Um, so you just sort of, you just kind of sit back and let it sweep over you and it kind of takes you away, away with it, which I thought was wonderful. Um, great, great performances. I mean, I don't really have to say that. Everyone has been saying that. Um, but but really just beautifully put together as well. Just the, the sheer kind of flow of it, I thought, was absolutely out of this world. I should just remind everybody, I know you've heard this in the previous podcast and obviously you've heard the interview as well, but this is about... Um, he said, he, Michael Keaton's character is putting on a play in Broadway. He's taken yes. all of his money and he's put it into taking quite a pretentious novel and turning it into a pretentious play because he wants to prove to everyone that he is an artist, which is, is totally understandable. And it's done uh, with an all-star cast, uh, Zach Galifianakis and Edward Norton and all mod cons. Emma Stone plays his daughter, who is um, a bit messed up, as is everyone in this movie. And it's kind of been talked about a lot because it does a rope-style trick, uh, as in Hitchcock's rope, of making shots semi-seamlessly, I should say, connect to each other. And it feels like a very fluid, individual take, although it does do tricks like pushes the camera up to the sun, then the sun goes down and then it comes back up and you see that sort of thing. You know, the back of a door or back of someone's shirt is the traditional trick, back of someone's jacket. So it's really a, a flair piece from Inaritu trying to almost show what he can do and, and discuss what it is to make art and, and, and be an artist and suffer the slings and arrows of, of critics. And this is uh, another Lebesky, uh, a cinematography job, isn't it? Mm -hmm. As in Chivo, who did Gravity last yeah. year. Manuel Lebeski. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, that's, ex that's a bit of a recommendation as well. Frankly, at this point, I'd go see anything he does. Blimey. Yep, I said it. If he could make the Police Academy remake, you'd see it. Uh, I would see that anyway. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> yeah, actually. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know why that one left me. Never mind. Uh, five stars then for Birdman. And let's move on then very, very quickly to the four star, The Theory of Everything, the tale of young Stephen Hawking and his wife, Jane. This is uh, a lovely little movie. It it really does sort of swing around the two main performances of Redmayne and Jones as as this couple. It charts the sort of time in Stephen Hawking's life you may not be that familiar with until unless you've really read up on his life, his younger years, his his student days before he sort of succumbed to his motor neurone disease and and was in a wheelchair and that sort of thing. It 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 sort of introduces you to the love affair between Stephen and Jane and how they came from very sort of opposing viewpoints. He's very science and uh, sort of mathematics, and she's very much more sort of religion and poetry and literature, and how they they manage to blend into this this fantastic couple that for at least a good sort of thirty years or so of their lives was sort of a wonderful marriage and and supporting each other and and working out, and uh, also then, of course, goes into how, uh, even in his younger days, he was essentially given what everyone said was almost a two-year death sentence. Everyone said, you'll probably be dead in two years from this motor neuron disease, and as we all know from the real world, he's, he's lived many years longer than that. And it's a, it's a really lovely look at their relationship, the ups and the downs and the problems, and his entire life. Um, it also, it's, it's, it's slightly biopic in that it does sort of follow his, his life, you know, A to B to C to D, this is what happens, but it's, it's lovely, it's lovingly shot. I mean, James Marsh, the director has done a really sort of nice job sort of getting everything where, and he, he does manage to explore how Hawking comes up with some of his ideas. He sort of has little, there's a moment where he's looking at a fire and he suddenly starts seeing things exploding in the fire and he sort of comes up with atomic ideas and things like that. So it's a, it's a really lovely made film. 
And Eddie Redmayne is fantastic in yeah. it. Uh, again, we're kind of beating the same drum here. Uh, this is the season to go see s- s- uh, movies in the cinema. It is uh, Oscar time, BAFTA time. Eddie Redmayne, fantastic work. Mm. There he, we talk about how he falls over. It's in the trailer. There's a moment where the motor neuron disease kind of grabs him by the ankles and just kind of yanks him and reminds him that it's boss. And he slams into the floor. And that's the beginning of him kind of transforming into this... He, he physically embodies this person. Stephen Hawking is a real transformation from the beginning to the end. Yeah, he's he's never you know clicking his heels together at the beginning, but he he really by the end of it when he's in the wheelchair and he's delivering speeches to adoring crowds, you believe it. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. astonishing. I mean, physically speaking, it's it's performance of the year. I think it's it's absolutely incredible. I would absolutely expect him to be on the nominees list. Um, for me, he might take it. Actually, I just think it's it's so. It's so technically difficult to do as well as, but I think he gets. I think he gets the twinkle in the eye as well. I think that's the thing, you know. Throughout all of this, I think what's what's really impressive is watching two basically decent people trying to basically be decent to each other, um, even when things get incredibly tough and they have to deal with things that no person should have to deal with. They they're they're still trying their best, and I think that's that's kind of the inspirational angle here, as much as the the great work that he accomplishes. I think the the the, the interconnection between them is. Is it almost as inspiring? I thought it was really, really good. Mm. And to take nothing away from Felicity Jones, who mm. doesn't have the sort of you know the the grandstanding performance of being able to do this, she just embodies sort of Jane Wilde as Jane Hawking, and and is wonderful in it because you you see this person that, that commits herself to caring for this man that she loves, and who just becomes her own independent person at the same time and has her own outside interests. And she's a she's a wonderful singer. She she joins choirs. She organizes things. She's and it's a fantastic little performance. It's yeah. really, really well done. They both have to deal with, you know, the the moving of the years. They have to age the characters and, and it, they both do it wonderfully. And it is from her perspective, I should point out. If you're yeah. thinking this is a, uh, and then he discovered this and here's another scientific paper and then he did this, space. It's not that. It's a family affair. It's drama. Yeah. There's a very, very affecting moment um, in the final final act with them talking uh, and and the voice is, is, is on board that's a real killer. But yeah, it's from her perspective based on her memoirs. So if you're very interested, if you watch the film, do check them out. Indeed, four stars then for the theory of everything. And as you mentioned, it is Oscar season. There's a lot of Oscar fare in the uh, cinemas right now. And this week's releases starts off with Into the Woods, which is obviously based on the Stephen Sondheim musical. All-star cast, Meryl Streep, Johnny Depp, uh, Emily Blunt, Chris Pine. Yep. Even our own James Corden is in there as well. Uh, fairy tale tinged yes oh fairy tale three eyes um this was kind of being talked up as a an oscar contender more before we saw it than afterwards i think um just because you know rob marshall had made chicago before and had oscar success with that but musicals aren't inherently oscary in the same way and especially this musical is so weird frankly that i think it's not the most obvious contender at the end of the day um but it has Meryl Streep in it, ergo we're having this conversation. Uh, she plays the witch, the Wicked Witch, who's kind of the the engine of the story in some ways. Uh, in other ways, it's James Corden and Emily Blunt who play who play a baker and his wife um, who are desperate to have a child. And it turns out they can't because uh, James Corden's been cursed uh, because of a family curse. His father was cursed by this witch um, because he stole greens from her garden. And the only way to break the curse is to assemble a variety of magical objects um, but within three days, and that will solve the problem. 
So they head into the woods to try and find these objects, as do numerous other people who include basically Little Red Riding Hood, Cinderella, Rapunzel's up in there. Um, there are princes rolling around. Um, and everything seems on course. This seems like you know what's going to happen. This is a fairy tale. Everything's kind of going to work out. Uh, but it's also a Stephen Sondheim musical, which kind of deconstructs the whole idea of fairy tales and, and questions how they work. So the happy ending, this is not a major spoiler because the musical has been out there for 40 years. The happy ending comes about two thirds of the way into the film and then things go a bit wrong. Um, and that's where it kind of gets interesting. So it's uh, it's a little bit of a different take on the um, on the fairy tale mythos. It's often very funny particularly where Chris Pine's nitwit prince is concerned. Um, he gets, for me, the song of the film is Agony, and he gets that really, really well. Um, but uh, otherwise, it's it, it, it's it's probably the best film they could have made from Into the Woods, but whether they should have made a film of Into the Woods is another affair because it doesn't naturally lend itself to being on screen. It actually works better if you have that interval after the happy ending and then go back in for lots more. Um trying to play that through actually feels profoundly weird and I, I had a little bit of a problem with that so it's it's good but it, it, it it's not great it suffers from the same problem as Les Mis did which is it is so intrinsically stagey this is by Sondheim who you could call the Shakespeare of, of, of music, musical writers he is a very very highly respected man and he's written he wrote a musical about musicals and about fairy tales and about how you don't always get what you want which is not your Disney movie. No. Except Sad it fact. is. Except it is, of course. It is almost entirely sung. Musical lovers love this. I was actually in a production of this as, as the sound guy, I should point out, way back when. And it is so lovey. I think if you're not into that sort of arch high being sung out, is this on a little bit louder than it should be type musical, then maybe take a step back. It's full on, very singy. And yeah, the word I've got for it is arch. Uh, I liked it. I like. I agree with you entirely, Helen. This is the best way they could have done it. They make a couple of neat tweaks to the plot mm. uh, because when it goes wrong, by God, does it go wrong? There are bits where you go, "Well, that's not family entertainment." Um, think madness, death, uh, which you just don't expect. Um, but yeah, it needs a break. It needs a break. And in the actual stage version, the second half is the second half, whereas in this film, it's the it's the third act. Yeah. So it's a little bit rushed at the end, I'd say. Yeah, they did They did cut out a few things. The The princes have an, a, a sort of a reprise of their song, which which was lost completely. There's a bit more darkness. I mean, there was worry from Sondheim, among others, that, that Disney would really file off the edges. And, and they have a little bit, if they we're have, honest. Yeah. They've left a lot of stuff kind of unsaid, and you can choose to see it there or not. Um, that's particularly true of Johnny Depp's one scene. If, if anyone out there hates Johnny Depp, don't worry, he's not in it for very long. Who would um, hate Johnny Depp? People do know him. It happens. Um, but he, in, in, in the musical, that's a really charged scene. Yeah. And they have softened the edges of that for very understandable reasons, as you'll see when you see it. Um, uh, but yeah, it's... So they, they've, they've kind of filed off a couple of rough edges, which I think is, a, is not a great thing in, in response to this particular musical because the rough edges are where it's fun. But it is kind of amazing that it works. And yeah, it does. Yeah, it's, it's a strange thing to reward a movie for kind of working. But it is it is a bit of a, a treat. It does have uh, Meryl Streep. Her opening song is a rap. So bear that in mind. It's that kind of movie. Also, <laughs> the songs aren't 
this is my song, these are my feelings. It's that, but also intricate layering of lyrics that feed in and out of each other, that reference back. There's lots of medleys and just a real... It's flair from everyone. Yeah. And I don't think there is a weak part in the in the acting or singing side. I think everyone brings their A game. I think that's true. I, I would say I talked to Anna Kendrick uh, shortly after she'd made this um, when she was on Pitch Perfect and she said, after you've sung Sondheim, everything else is easy. Um, the, the the Broadway kind of uh, parody stage show, uh, Forbidden Broadway, um, does a Sondheim medley, which is called Into the Words, <laughs> which, you know, which just emphasizes it. it's all it's actually all about the lyrics. It's, it, the music is is there to prop up the lyrics, which are incredibly intricate and, and involved. And, and that's what you really want to listen to, actually, in this case. It's not medleys that you're going to go away singing. It's it's snatches of words that are going to stick with you. Excellent. Sounds good. Uh, three stars for Into the Woods, which, as we all know, is the first recommendation of 2015. Uh, so do go check it out. If you're into musicals, sung through musicals, I saw Cats this week, didn't understand what was going on. Doesn't sound like the sort of film for me, but there you go. I should point out that next week we've got the one and only queen of the everything. Oh, Helen's back. Yeah. Meryl Streep. Oh. oh. There is so much goodness in this week's podcast that we've actually asked politely if Meryl wouldn't mind being in next week's podcast. Mm-hmm. And she said, no problem. Not a problem. Would you like another cup of tea? Did she rap? Uh, she did, but I'm not going to impersonate that because <laughs> she's just too good. I think in, in next week's podcast, Meryl Streep will actually be playing Chris and will win an Oscar for it. She'll, She'll do that a better good. job. She'll yeah. do a better job. But obviously we'll be talking about Into the Woods at length and also her upcoming project where she plays a terrible opera singer. Ooh. Uh, it's called Florence. Ooh. Oh. Okay, so look forward to that one. Uh, moving on, let's have another Oscar hopeful, shall we? Foxcatcher, Bennett Miller's Foxcatcher. Yeah, Foxcatcher is, uh, is, as you said, another one from Bennett Miller, the man who gave us Moneyball and Capote. Uh, it's uh, a very tragic true story. It's a true story with a very much a sting in its tail. It's the story of a man named John DuPont, uh, who in the States what is, was the heir to uh, a huge chemical fortune, the DuPont family. And uh, he is fascinated and driven by the sort of the area of... Well, he's, he's fascinated and driven by sports, but he's mostly fascinated and driven by trying to make America great again and part of that is driving through sports. It's His family's always been into hunting and all those sorts of slightly wealthy pursuits. Uh, he, however, is fascinated by wrestling, which most of his family tends to uh, sort of look down on a little bit because his mother in particular considers it's a low sport. It's, it's not something that sort of their uh, rich type should be dealing with, but he loves it. He, and he hires, uh, in particular, an Olympic champion wrestler. He hires uh, this guy, Mark Schultz, uh, played by Channing Tatum, to essentially start an academy to uh, teach, a, uh, train up a load of wrestlers and basically just score Olympic gold and, and make America proud of its sportsmen. And uh, it frankly all goes a little bit tragically wrong. Uh, I probably shouldn't say how. It's a, it's a bit of a spoiler, even though it is a, you know, a true story and, and the reports are out there. And, uh, and it's essentially... Uh, John DuPont is played by Steve Carell, who we all know as Rick Tamland, as we know from Michael Scott from the American version of The Office. And this is such a transformation. It's partly prosthetics, but it's mostly him. He has become this guy, this sort of slightly shambling, but also slightly dangerous, very unhinged in his own way sort of man. That's so completely driven, so focused on what he wants, that it's, it's nothing like you've ever seen Steve Carell before. 
it's it's you will almost there are times you don't think it's Steve Carell. He is actually that good in this performance, and it's uh, the whole film itself. It's made Mark Ruffalo also plays uh, uh, Mark Schwartz's brother, who is a fellow Olympic wrestler, sort of you know a fellow champion wrestler. And it's it's just this sort of complex intertwining story of these three men and what happens between them. Mm. It's, it's an interesting film, this, because it's essentially a film about three men who can't express their feelings and who don't talk about anything, really. And there are long periods where it seems like no one is saying anything or if they are saying anything, it's not what they mean, um, even slightly. And and that, I think, has, has kind of put some people off. I think it's it's a little bit hard to, to warm to because of that. Um, I, I personally ended up quite liking that because I sort of felt like I knew what they were where they were coming from anyway, for the most part. But I can completely understand some of the criticism the films had, saying that maybe they could have just given us a little bit more uh, just to kind of understand the dynamics. And also, I mean, the, the true story itself is is so uh, dramatic and so uh, shocking um, that, you know, some of, the, some of the storytelling maybe kind of downplays the shock in a way that is perhaps, you know, they're too committed to being low-key. At times, having said that, I, I, you know, with, with that was my major problem with it. I felt like they could have gotten to the drama of the of the affair a little bit earlier. Um, but generally speaking, I thought the performances, especially Tatum, I think he he transforms himself into this, you know, heavy jawed kind of you know guy who who shows no no real self confidence beyond his beyond his wrestling. Uh, very much, you know, depends on first his brother. And then Dupont for for kind of support and guidance, and and is clearly has some you know has some serious kind of uh, problems at this time in his life. And I think you know it 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 makes you really really care about him. And I thought Tatum was was terrific for me. He was the standout. This is a film, of course, that's been in the uh, news recently. It's been part of the Oscar race mm. since forever. It seems uh, Mark Schultz, uh, who's on Twitter as Mark Schultze, recently took to Twitter. He's been very supportive of this film up to a point shall we say, because recently he took to Twitter and um, had a bit of a meltdown, I think is the best way to phrase this, uh, about Bennett Miller, the director, uh, largely typing, I'm going to read out a couple of the tweets, just to give you an idea of how... All caps, right? All caps. So picture all caps. I can tolerate a lot of things, but I don't tolerate disrespect. We're done, Bennett. Uh, You think I can't take you down with all your rich friends? Punk. Pussy. You want a war? You got it. Many exclamation marks. Uh, Die, die, die. Die, 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 die. Maybe he's just saying Lee. No evil man could ever speak German. Uh, liar, 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 liar. You cross the line, Miller. We're done. Your career, Austriari, uh, career is over. You think I can't do it? Watch me. All of you die. Lying bastards, bastard asshole. So on and so forth. You get the idea. Then he came out in, a, in another statement and said that he had been, uh, he felt that he would have been misled and uh, mis. He felt he'd been mis- misled and maybe misportrayed in the movie. And there's a scene in the movie where some people have been reading, uh, reading into. Uh, th- that suggests that maybe Dupont and Mark Schultz had a sexual relationship, which he says is absolutely not did not happen. You know, and how you know. So, but now he's come out and he apologised for the meltdown, and everyone's we're all friends again. And he's he's even admitted he's contractually obligated to support the film for another couple of months, which is great. But that aside, the film itself, four stars. I would agree with that. Yeah, I would like to point out that this is this year. This movie has been my Captain Phillips where everyone has said very interesting things about it. I mm-hmm. found it interesting. I thought it was well made. I thought everyone in it was good. But I personally found it bloated and boring and it wasn't my cup of tea. That's not a review <laughs> saying that this movie didn't 
work with me, but I honestly couldn't wait for it to end. And when it did end, I found it very anticlimactic. I think, Helen, you put it very well. So personally, if you ever listen to what I'm saying and agree <laughs> with it on occasion, I didn't like it. I, I thought it went it went on and not much went on when it was going on. Well, tune in next week for a special segment of the podcast uh, <laughs> where basically called Ali, like, Ali Hates ba- Nice Things. I'll next week, re- puppies. I'll be reading out Ali's tweets next week. Puppies think- are not like, are not like Foxcatcher <laughs> and by God, they're not like Captain Phillips. Okay, I'm going to get two puppies. I'm going to call one Foxcatcher and one Captain Phillips, and then we'll see. Captain Foxcatcher? Yeah. <laughs> you think I can't take you down, Captain Foxcatcher? I'll take you down, you and your rich friends. <laughs> you want a war? You got a war! You puppy, you cute little puppy. Uh, all right, uh, lastly, the last film this week, and speaking of the big Oscar contenders, I think this one has it all in the bag. It really does. It's the return of Liam Neeson as Brian Mills with this particular set of skills in Taken 3, uh, which Ali and I have seen. That's correct. It is the story of Brian Mills, mm. retired government operative who in the previous two films has had his daughter taken and himself taken in their third film in an amazing twist. No one gets taken. Except the audience. Hooray. For a ride. Uh, yes, it's uh, him in LA um, with a stuffed panda going to see his daughter who, of course, he's is... He's teamed up with a stuffed panda. Is now, yes, it's his, his, <laughs> his buddy cop partnership is now with a stuffed panda. He goes to give a stuffed panda to his uh, quite old now daughter... Uh, whose birthday it is. Uh, she's still in college, apparently. She is still in college. Maggie Grace is 31. Anyway, so he gives Maggie Grace his panda, and Maggie goes, you know what? Bell for this shit. And I'm thinking, so are you, Liam. You promised us on the Empire podcast that this yeah. just, it was inconceivable. Yeah. And quite frankly, I agree with him. When you compare it to the other Taken movies, I wouldn't say it's the worst, but I think it has a good fight with two. Oh, no, it is. It's it, For me... It's comfortably the worst. It's one of those movies, it's a bit like Helen, you said this about when you saw The Love Guru. It made you want to go back and revisit Austin Powers and Wayne's World <laughs> and just yeah. double check that Mike Myers was funny and those films were funny because this is so terrible that you can't believe that the first films were good. And I know that a lot of people, you know, I quite like the first Taken. For me, it's a really solid action movie. It was it was the one that, that started the, uh, the Nissanissance is what I'm calling it. Um, no. No? No. No? Definitely not. We won't New- allow it, sorry. New- Liam Newson, because he was coming... Anyway, uh, it, it started his resurgence as an action hero and, and led to a, a, a swathe of copycats and you know this whole Jerry action genre with all the old geezers killing people. You could argue stems from Taken. The Equalizer is pretty much a Taken movie in all but name, for example. Uh, and I, I really like Taken. I think it's got it's got a lot of things wrong with it. It's got a lot of things right with it, Main, namely Brian Mills and 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 a story, a real a real story where he actually, after twenty minutes of faffing around with a karaoke machine, it finally kicks into gear. He has a great speech. He goes to Paris and he punches and shoots everyone he meets. That's nice and simple. Yeah. Second movie was dreadful, uh, and this movie is even worse. And the problem I think is Olivia Megaton, the director, who has his last four films. I'm just going to read them right, read them out to you now. The last four films: The Transporter Three, awful; Columbiana, awful; Taken mm. Two. Dreadful. Taken three. Worst of the trilogy. Uh, this man should not be allowed to direct action. How are we living in a world with a Taken trilogy? It's the unexpected trilogy <laughs> of 2015. <laughs> I, I honestly feel like this one actually has a plot where it has a yeah. beginning, middle and end. Things happen. There are twists. There are turns. Action happens. And yes. because it has that, it makes it better than two, which was just a train wreck where all the different compartments went off into different stations, then exploded separately because someone chucked a grenade outside. This movie, I, oh, this is faint praise, 
works? Well, this movie is a fugitive, but it's a fugitive written by idiots and directed by a man who doesn't know how to direct an action sequence. Just an amazing interview. I think Film Divider did an interview this week with Livia Megaton, and uh, who I've interviewed before, and he's a very nice guy, and, you know... <laughs> he's enthusiastic. <laughs> he's enthusiastic. He means well. Uh, but the first question in the interview was literally, um, what's the difference for as a director? What's the difference between a good action sequence and a bad action sequence? And his answer, I'm not making this up, is, I don't know, you tell me. I, I don't know. Um, yeah. And he, he literally can't articulate it. <laughs> so... Yeah, the, the problem that this, this film has is that it's extraordinarily dull. And it completely misses the point of what made Brian Mills so popular first time around. And the fact is that Liam now, bless him, I wouldn't mess with him still, but you, you get the sense that the movie's having to, you know, put some sticking plaster over certain things that he can no longer do. He's not really a fan of running, so what do you do? You write a film where he runs for a lot of the time. This is by his own admission. He says he can't run very well. He doesn't like running very, very well. He likes the punching stuff and the punching and the kicking and the, and the, and the shooting of the people. And this movie holds that back for ages. You get a really, really dull plot with Forrest Whitaker as a, as a rubbish version of Tommy Lee Jones from The Fugitive trying to hunt down Brian Mills. But because it takes ages to get to the, the real bad guy and see if you can spot the real bad guy fans when the real bad guy shows up for the first time, um, <laughs> it may not be that difficult to spot. It's just, it's a bit of a model. It's a bit of a mess and it takes ages to kick in. There's maybe two decent fight sequences, Ali? It's a tough one, yeah. It, it, when when he's in an enclosed space, like in the yeah. end of Taken when he's he's tied to that overhead pipe, mm. that is interesting. I like that a lot. Um, they only do that maybe twice. Yeah. Uh, it just doesn't work and I, I don't think there was demand for this one. Um, but I guess I'll be proved wrong when it comes out and everyone goes and watches it. And then we we're back here talking about Taken 4 with yeah. Olivia Megaton in a, in a couple of years' time. Yeah, I'm I'm not saying... I just wish it wasn't directed by him. and that it, I want the Brian Mills character yeah. doing something great directed mm. by someone else with a different script. Don't you feel it? Do you remember, in, <laughs> I think, in the first film, there was that bit where he talks to his old buddies? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Why did they never go back to the old buddies? Oh, the old buddies are a big part of this. They're oh, back really? with they're a vengeance. Yeah. Oh. They, they, well, then I take it all back. That to, didn't solve the problem. To say more about them would make you realise just how ludicrous this is. Because if I explain to you how they get involved, wow. Yeah, it's um, it's both preposterous, but mm. not preposterous enough. Yeah, It's a funny film. I agree yeah. that it, it does have patches that are just it's, quite... It's, it's got, quite a couple of, got a couple of decent patches. It's got a couple, of, a couple of things that are going for it. It's, it's, it's a two-star film. It's not a one-star write-off. Oh, no. But no, it is. It is pretty bad. But I think, I think this is a film that's been cobbled together. For example, there's a really weird bit where Brian Mills, uh, who is an unkillable ghost at this point, you can just appear beside people without any warning, and it, which is just totally ridiculous. Not even Jack Reacher can do that, honestly. Um, hijacks a car driven by someone. Right, and uh, he goes to a liquor store for reasons that I can't go into. And when we get to the liquor store, we see that the person he's hijacked, and this is this is weird. Maybe this is something just I'm picking up on. But he's played by Wallace Langham, who is Hodges in CSI, right, and was also in the Larry Sanders show, and is a very very funny guy. Now he's been in CSI long enough now to be a guy that you cast in a film to be funny and sardonic. He's a and he doesn't have a single line. He just. He's just sitting there in the in the car at gunpoint held by Barry Mills looking terrified and then just leaves the film. And you just get this feeling that there was a much longer version where he was like, oh, 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 are you taking me to a liquor store? Are you drunk or something? Ha, ha, ha. Oh, no, you're not drunk. You've got a gun. Um, and that, to me, epitomizes how much of a muddle this film is. Ah, it gets worse. It's a Ooh. 12A. So you thought this might have some blood and punching guts and whatever. Okay, so it takes a while to get there, but we're going to get the real 
fist in, jaw, eyes out of sockets, great... No, you don't. In fact, I actually think I saw a version earlier on which was a little bit more enthusiastically violent. I think it's been newtoned out yet more. Uh, it's also telling that this was embargoed very much until release. I know that doesn't mean anything, but just so you know. Yeah. So yeah, this is a 12A uh, washout. Just you know, one last thing about that point because we spent too much time, too much time on taking three, more time than it deserves, uh, which is a real shame. Again, uh, yeah, you're absolutely right. One of the things I loved about the first taken, and it, the first taken had a really weird kind of history. It actually was meant to go straight to video in the states, and was actually then became a huge hit around the world. And then they released it in the states, and everyone seemed to love it. But we over here got the sort of uncensored hardcore version. And that's what I loved about it. And I, I, it seems weird to me now in a, in a world where we have action movies like The Raid and The Raid 2 and their influence on other action movies. For example, The Equalizer, I mentioned again. Um, whatever you may think of that film, it didn't pull its punches when it came to the violence. It was unashamedly, unabashedly R-rated. And you, you, you get a feeling with Taken 2 and Taken 3 that it'd be much better if they just, you know... Let the blood flow a little bit. Two stars then for Taken 3, which is not a recommendation. And that's it for this week's Empire Podcast in association with Squarespace. Join us next week for more film-related fun. We'll be joined by Alicia Fikander, the wonderful star of Ex Machina, and, as you've already heard, a young newcomer by the name of Meryl Streep, for whom we're predicting great things. Until then, it's goodbye from Helen. Too low. There you are. Uh, It's goodbye from Ali. Bye. And it's goodbye from Jaime Blanco, James White. See you all next year. Flights are expensive. Yeah, they are, aren't they? Uh, And it's goodbye from me. I'm off to try a bowl full of Jellicle. See you guys next week.